If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. So on page 184 in the Bibles that are in front of you in the chairs. As we turn there, just a brief reminder of where we've been. A couple weeks ago, things were not looking good for Israel. There had been sin in the camp as Achan had taken some of the the devoted things uh, that he was not supposed to take. And so that was discovered. Uh, Israel suffered defeat at Ai. And then upon discovery of that, and uh, as Achan uh, was disciplined and uh, received wrath for what he had done, uh, then they regrouped in chapter 8, and the people of Israel went and they conquered Ai. And this time, the Lord was with them, and so they were victorious in battle. And now we come to chapter 9 and come to a somewhat unusual episode here in the book of Joshua. And so we're going to read and see what happens as what is kind of beginning to take shape is because of the events at, at AI, the other nations are starting to say, wait a second, something's happening here. The other people groups are getting together, and they're preparing to kind of join forces to go against the Israelites to go against God's people. But as we'll see, there's one group that decides that's not really the way they want to go. So let's read about that in Joshua chapter 9. Children, I especially uh, encourage you to listen and see what kind of tricks are going on in this passage. Okay? See if there's any kind of funny business that's happening here in Joshua chapter 9. Well, let's read this. The Word of God. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning And went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. Behold, they have burst. 
And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Jephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is God's word. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that you move in mysterious ways and that you do things for your glory and honor that are beyond what we would think or imagine. And we thank you for your grace that we see so clearly in your word and that you sent Jesus to come and rescue deceivers like me and like us. So we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to receive your word this morning, and to apply it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in terms of uh, calendar holidays, today is St. Patrick's Day. But after reading this passage, you may be thinking of another holiday. You know, the holiday where people dress up, kids, some adults too. They dress up, they conceal their true identity. They go knocking on the doors asking for candy. That's pretty much... What happened here, because long before trick-or-treat started, there were the Gibeonites, and they dressed up, right? And they made themselves look all worn out and tired and exhausted and all these things. And they went knocking on Joshua's door, concealing their true identity, not to ask for candy, but to ask for their lives to be spared. This is somewhat unusual here in Joshua 9. We've been reading in recent chapters of the various military victories, the ones at Jericho, the one at, at AI, 
where the Lord had gone and fought for the people of Israel. And so what had happened is that news had begun to spread of the events of these battles. The other peoples begin to actually get together, we see at the beginning of chapter 9, and form some kind of bad guy, supervillain, team-up army as they prepare to take on Israel. But then there's the Gibeonites. And as they heard these reports, and as they saw what was happening, they, they had heard and seen enough already of what the Lord God had done previously. And they knew that God's people were coming to take the land in full and to complete and finish the job. They knew that their community would be in the path of what was to come. So all these other peoples were getting together and, and kind of forming to make this super team. The giving guys thought of a different plan. They figured, hey, these guys have God. We're not going to beat them. So maybe we should join them. So they prepared this massive deception of Joshua and the leadership of Israel. In other words, they prepare kind of an epic trick-or-treat as they dress up and make this journey. It tells us in Joshua 9, they took worn-out clothes and worn-out sandals. They, made, they took dry and crumbly bread. They made it look old. They gathered worn-out wineskins. They even went so far as to make their animals look tired. As they pretended to be worn-out travelers from a far, far-away land who had heard about what the Lord God had done and desired to enter into a covenant with Joshua and the people for their own protection. They even told an old story as they talked to Joshua. They didn't reference the events that had happened at Ai. They didn't even really talk about some of the stuff right before that. They went kind of back a ways. They went back to, oh, look what the Lord did in Egypt. They even told an old worn-out story as part of their deception. And lo and behold, it works. Joshua and the leadership of Israel, of Israel enter into a covenant with them, making peace with them, agreeing to let them live. Eventually, this ruse is discovered as the people enter into the Gibeonite territory. And they're up in arms because they've been deceived. The leaders had made a covenant not with a worn-out group of travelers from a far and weary land, but with the Gibeonites who were practically right under their nose. As we look at this passage this morning, we want to consider two realities about God and His relationship to us and how we are to respond to the events in Joshua 9. And the first thing we want to see is the faithfulness of God to His covenants. One of the things that we see clearly in this passage and in all of Scripture is God's faithfulness, particularly to His promises and His covenants. God had made a covenant going all the way back to Abraham to give His people the land of Canaan. And currently, this covenant was in the process of being realized under Joshua's leadership. At the end of Joshua chapter 8, we saw that Joshua had read all of the law to the people, reminding them of the covenant that God had made, and that part of the blessing was for them to inherit this land. In doing so, they were to drive out other peoples from the land, as we have talked about previously in Joshua. God had already demonstrated his faithfulness in fighting for his people, delivering them from their enemies. He had demonstrated also the seriousness of the covenant. And what happened with Achan as his disobedience by taking the devoted things resulted in judgment upon Israel 
that ultimately led to Achan's death. As chapter 9 begins, we're reminded of Achan's sin. The other people that are kind of gathering and beginning to come together to fight against Israel, they have been emboldened because of the temporary military defeat that Israel suffered at Ai. They've got a little courage and they've got a thing going and they're coming together to fight. Yet on Israel's side is the faithful God, the one who keeps his promises and keeps his covenant with his people. And then here comes this unusual third party, the Gibeonites, knocking on the door of Israel, wanting to be part of the people who had God on their side, wanting to enter into a covenant. But we want to ask the question, why would, Israel, why would the Gibeonites want to enter into a covenant with Israel? The reason why is because they knew enough about God. They had heard enough about him to know that, one, he was powerful, and they were about to get wiped out. And two, he was faithful. If they could somehow to get Israel to enter into an agreement to protect them, that Israel would have to stick to their word. And it works. And it works for a long time. First of all, we see here in our passage that the Israelites, they initially treat them with skepticism. They aren't sure of their intentions. They're asking them questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? Yet ultimately, they agree to make a covenant with them and establish peace with them. And the leaders of Israel do this, it says in Joshua 9.14, without asking counsel from the Lord. We're going to revisit that later. But we're left to ponder at this point, what might have happened had they asked God? What would that have been like? But they did not ask God. But what we do know is that God is faithful. That a covenant made in his presence is serious business. So in this case, the Gibeonites have come under the protection of not just an agreement to be allowed to live by Israel. They've come under the protection of the God who is faithful. Not only do we see it here at this point in God's story in the book of Joshua. We see it later in 2 Samuel. There's a time in 2 Samuel where Saul has violated this covenant by killing some of the Gibeonites. I mean, this is years and years and years down the road. And even after that, after Saul has died, there's a famine in the land for three years. And David goes to find out why. Why is this happening? He says there's blood guilt on Saul and his house because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So years and years later, God is still holding his people to the terms of the covenant that was made with the Gibeonites. And Saul is dead at that point. So David ends up sending seven of Saul's sons to the Gibeonites to be dealt with. And then the famine stops. Descendants of the Gibeonites are mentioned later. Nehemiah is part of those who return from the exile to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God is faithful to his covenants. Even covenants that come about in mysterious, strange ways. The Gibeonites have gone from being in the path of the Israelite army and being uprooted from the land to being unusually attached to God's people. So we are reminded here that God is faithful to his covenants, even if they come up in a strange way. And as we read this, we're, we're, we can't help but say, wait a second. These people were frauds. Look what they have done. Look at this deception. There's no way this is legit. 
How can it be that God would be faithful to such a covenant with them? That brings us to our our second point, our second reality that we want to be reminded of this morning. And that's the grace of God to deceivers. In the world of sports, there are often athletes who become the huge stars. They become the face of their sport. They become the household name that even people who don't follow any sports may have actually heard of them. In basketball, since the turn of the century, it's been LeBron James. In golf, it's been Tiger Woods. In football, to my chagrin, it's been Tom Brady. And in cycling, it was Lance Armstrong. Now, I'm not a cycler. You don't, you don't want to see that. It's not going to turn out pretty. Um, I don't really follow cycling. But Lance Armstrong was the name that owned the headline for several years when it came to cycling. He won several Tour de France races. And at his time, he was the best in his sport. He battled cancer. And he inspired many people in the process. But a few years ago, he was stripped of all his seven of his Tour de France titles. His sponsors dropped him from their advertising campaigns. His charity, which had done a lot of good over the years, was put into a difficult position. Well, what happened? Well, there was massive evidence and testimony from teammates that revealed that he had been using performance-enhancing drugs in the midst of winning all those titles, along with many others. He had been tested many times over the years and typically passed tests by finding ways to work the system, to use deception to appear clean. At that time, there was a, a quote that was offered by Pat McQuaid, who was the president of the International Cycling Union, when he announced Armstrong's ban. He said this, Lance Armstrong has no place in cycling, and he deserves to be forgotten in cycling. When we look at what happens with the Gibeonites, how they deceive their way into a covenant, our first reaction is like, they don't, they don't deserve anything good here. Look at what they've done. They're frauds. They've tricked the Israelite leaders. Can't we somehow reverse this covenant? Can't we take it back like Lance Armstrong's cycling victories? So this is where we see our amazing God at work. He is faithful and powerful. And the Gibeonites knew this, which is why they sought his protection. But what they really didn't know at this point, was that God also delights to show mercy. And he delights to show grace to those who are undeserving. The people of Israel, when they realize they can't kill the Gibeonites, they're grumbling and they're upset. They grumble because they know the covenant is binding, that God is faithful. But also they likely grumble because somewhere in the back of their minds they're saying, okay, this is God. Here he goes again, showing mercy. This is the God who banished Adam and Eve from the garden because they listened to the ultimate deceiver, Satan, instead of him, yet also gave them a promise through the seed of the woman that he would crush the head of the deceiver and showed grace to Adam and Eve and those who would follow. This is the God who promised through Abraham to give his people the land of Canaan, who promised to give Abraham and Sarah a son, And did not waver even when Abraham and Sarah 
attempted to try to fulfill that promise in the wrong way by having Abraham be with his servants. He still blesses them with their son Isaac. This is the God who established the people of Israel from a man named Jacob, the son of Isaac, who obtained a birthright from his Esau, his brother Esau, through fraud and deception. Even earlier in Joshua, we saw where God rescued Rahab, who protected Joshua's spies by deceiving her own people. This is the God who keeps his covenant, and we see all through the scriptures, even as his people wavered through disobedience. He disciplined them along the way. He sent them judges and kings and prophets to rescue them. And they still continue to wander. But all those he sent, all those judges and kings and prophets, they were a preview of what was to come. Because ultimately God would send his son Jesus to come and take on flesh. Our Savior, our King, to come live a life of perfect obedience, to suffer and die upon the cross, to rise from the dead so deceivers like Jacob, like the Israelite people, like the Gibeonites, like you, like me, can be restored to the faithful God of the universe who is full of grace and mercy. 1 Peter 2 tells us that Jesus, He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. He had no deceit in His mouth. Yet He died for deceivers. This is God's grace. That which we cannot do in regards to obedience, Christ accomplished through His life. That which we cannot atone for in regards to sin, Christ atoned for it through His death. That which we cannot overcome in regards to sin and death, Christ overcame through His resurrection. And He did it, not for the righteous. He did it for sinners, for deceivers. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us of our condition apart from Christ. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Children, students, remember that verse next time you watch a Disney movie and they're saying that follow your heart stuff. Remember these things. But we're reminded here, due to our sinful condition, our hearts are sick. And we need a new heart that only God can give. Jesus tells us in Mark 7 that our problem is not external, it's internal. That what is happening on the inside comes out. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. That inner deceit eventually makes its way out. We find ourselves deceiving others through manipulation, through lies, through putting on a mask and pretending everything's okay. Even in this story in Joshua 9, part of the deception is not just the theatrics of the Gibeonites, but on some level the Israelites were already there. They, they had already been deceived themselves. 
by thinking that their self-reliance, their self-sufficiency was enough to deal with this matter. And so they did not ask God for wisdom. This morning, I need to ask you, I need to, to ask myself, have we acknowledged ourselves to be deceptive sinners? Have we acknowledged our desire to put on the mask and think everything's okay? And have we recognized that and cast ourselves upon the mercy and grace of Christ? He came for deceivers like you and me. We were those who, we were like Lance Armstrong. We had no place in the kingdom. We deserved to be forgotten. But Jesus came to give us a place in his kingdom because he remembered his faithfulness in place of our faithlessness. He came for those <clears throat> who are deceivers to turn them into receivers of his grace. First John 1 that we read earlier in the assurance after we confessed our sins says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is good news for us this morning as we consider what God has done for us. So not only did the Gibeonites come under the protection of God who was faithful, not only were they shown grace as they were delivered from the Israelite people, but by God's grace they were, off, they were given a new purpose. Toward the end of chapter 9, as Joshua confronts them about the deception, he pronounces curses upon them. They are held to the terms of the covenant. They become servants, specifically cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. The Gibeonites receive this curse. They entrust themselves to his judgment. And Joshua delivers them from the Israelites. And so they become cutters of wood, Jars of water for the congregation, and this is important here, for the altar of the Lord. And so, you know, if we were upset about them, you know, getting off the hook for fraud, you know, this is kind of going overboard at this point. What seems like a lowly task and is a lowly task and is a very, uh, a task that requires a lot of hard work that they were sentenced to do. However, they were to do this in the presence of the Lord, and at the place where Israel worshipped. One commentator says this, that as servants they will witness the atoning sacrificial system of Israel up close and personally. Their work at the altar may be a redemptive note for the Gibeonites, and it should be understood as a blessing in the midst of cursing. Psalm 84, which we read earlier in the service, says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Gibeonites were in the tents of wickedness. They had spent thousands of days there. And now they have become servants in the household of God. And even one day of that, that they would receive many more, would be better. These deceivers have become receivers of grace. And they've been given a new purpose of serving in the household of the faithful God. So this is what God does. He turns things upside down. He accomplishes His sovereign purpose in mysterious ways. He's not thwarted by the foolishness of leaders who forget to ask Him for wisdom. 
or the deception of others. He uses all things for his glory and for our good. And so how do we respond and apply this today? Three things quickly. First, I think the first response, again, is how do we view ourselves? As we already mentioned, we must recognize our own uh, deception and our own need for grace. We must see ourselves as deceivers at heart who have been transformed into receivers of God's grace through Jesus. This leads us to a posture of humility and of thankfulness as we look to Christ who rescued us from our sins. Secondly, I think this passage challenges how we view others. It's easy for us to somehow think that we might be better than the person next to us. This is a trap that we can easily fall into. The Apostle Paul warns us in Galatians 6, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We see in the parables of Jesus where the laborers in the vineyard that worked the least amount of time because they were hired late in the day received the same as those who had been there all day. That's because it's not about us. It's about God. It's about His faithfulness, His grace, His mercy that He sent Jesus to rescue us, to show us grace, to accomplish His good work on our behalf. And that He does things for His people that are far beyond what we deserve. Finally, I think the last point is how do we relate to God in this? And we must remember to ask God for wisdom and guidance in everyday situations. The Israelites, they had been somewhat humbled previously with the temporary defeat at Ai, but it seems that after the victory that followed, things were kind of cranking up and going pretty well. So they felt that they could handle the situation without God's help. If the message of the events at Ai was that we cannot fight battles without God's power, the message here is that we cannot make decisions and plans without God's wisdom. And so, friends, we need to seek His wisdom. We need His Word. We need to pray. We need solid counsel from other believers. We need to be wary of our own self-reliance as we approach the issues of life, whether great or small. And ultimately, as we seek God for wisdom, it leads us to worship. Because as we seek His wisdom, we seek God. And we see all that He has done for us in Christ. We see His sovereign work of redemption. We see His purposes. We see His plans. We rejoice and give glory to Him who gave it all so that we could have life and be receivers of grace. Please pray with me. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You that at the time where we were ungodly, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that You have loved us with an everlasting love. That You forgive us of all our sins. And so we pray that You would remind us of Your grace. That You would also Call us to seek your wisdom, uh, that we would worship and praise you uh, instead of relying upon ourselves. And we'll give you the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.